2: 18 plus
0: but there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
3: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 8th. 2015 on this week's show, we'll talk about the first two games of the NBA Finals, both of which went to overtime with regulation ending with LeBron James missing a game-winning shot, one of which featured the Cavaliers' Kyrie Irving breaking his kneecap, and which finished up on Sunday night with Cleveland and Golden State tied one game apiece. We'll then be joined by Sports Illustrated's Tim Layden to talk about American Pharaoh winning the Belmont Stakes to become the first horse since 1978 to take the Triple Crown, and we'll finish up by talking about the start of the FIFA Women's World Cup, which will hopefully be an excellent event, despite featuring the word FIFA. Joining me in Washington, D.C., is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the man responsible for the entire $607 American box office take of the FIFA propaganda film United Passions, starring Tim Roth yeah. as Sepp Blatter. I took my, my girl soccer <laughs> team to see it, and we stayed for three
1: viewings $600 yeah. we paid every time though we're honest the honest seven people.
3: was from from tipping the usher for allowing you to just stay through every uh, every viewing um, with us from New York and filling in for Mike Pesca is Mary Pollan. Mary is the author of the book The Monopolists about the history of the board game monopoly which means I better have written a book about Settlers of Catan, or I Do Not Belong (laughs) on this podcast. Um, She's also just published a great piece on Grantland on the 40th anniversary of the death of Steve Prefontaine, the runner, which everyone should check out. Mary, it's fantastic to have you back on Hang Up and Listen.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, and um, you may have noticed, Mary, um, that we're not going to talk about many, many things on today's show. Among them, the French Open, Champions League final, hockey... College baseball, super
1: regionals. Softball. Softball. On, the college
2: women's softball.
1: It's got to be like the second or third best tournament in college women's softball. There's been so much sports softball. news
2: lately. I mean, you have to make some cuts. There's just been so much going on. Am I crazy? I just feel like every now and then there's just like a, a week or two where there's just, I mean, scandals alone in the last week or two. It's been exhausting.
1: We're not going to talk about FIFA? We're going to find a way to talk <laughs> about FIFA. But Josh <laughs> is teasing us because... Yeah.
3: Yeah, our bonus segment, we are, in fact, going to cram everything in. We're not going to leave anything out. Yeah. We're going to talk about every sporting event that happened this weekend because we want our listeners to be satisfied, our Slate Plus members. Um, we'll talk about all these things and how to handle the weekend with an overwhelming volume of sporty goodness. Uh, to hear the bonus segment this week and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash You can get a free two-week trial if you want, um, and you get that at that same URL, slate.com slash hangup plus. This past summer, when LeBron James decided to leave Miami, go back to Cleveland, um, and the Cavaliers acquired all-star Kevin Love in a trade, the Cavs became everyone's favorite to make it to the NBA Finals. That's exactly where Cleveland ended up, but in Sunday night's Game 2, none of the four players who started alongside LeBron in the season opener played for a single minute (laughs) Love Kyrie Irving and Anderson Varejo, all out with season-ending injuries. Dion Waiters shipped out of town in a cardboard box uh, many, many months ago. Uh, the eight players who took the floor against the Golden State Warriors included three Knicks cast-offs, uh, Timofey Mozgov, J.R. Smith, and Iman Shumpert, who were acquired in midseason trades. Two guys, James Jones and Mike Miller, who came with LeBron from Miami, are a combined 69 years old. An averaged combined six and a half points per game this be year. More impressive if they were each sixty-nine <laughs> years old. They might very well be. I think. I think Mike Miller has been lying about his age for years. Uh, another guy, Matthew Delvadova, who's an undrafted second-year backup point guard, and finally Tristan Thompson, who is a very good player, a key to Cleveland success, but has scored a total of four points
1: in the finals thus far. Backup second-year point guard from Australia. You left Ooh. out the salient fact of Matthew Delvadova's life.
3: Deadly. Um, And yet, the Cavs leave California with a series tied 1-1, took both games to overtime, thanks mostly to great defense and LeBron James's 83 points, albeit on a wildly inefficient 29 for 73 shooting. The Warriors, meanwhile, suffered through a 5 for 23 shooting performance from MVP Stephen Curry on Sunday. But remain the favorites to win the series, given the Golden State was one of the best regular season teams in history. And Cleveland is running out of people who can play basketball. Uh, Mary, (laughs) what did you see in those first two games?
2: You know, what I'm fascinated by is watching LeBron. And actually, I know we said we weren't going to talk about the, the French Open, but I am. Because I think that there is an analogous thing with watching Serena Williams play. When you have an athlete who's so dominant... I can't decide whether it's boring because you're just totally sucked into watching them, or if it's fascinating because it's like watching, you know, a master of the craft. So watching him play with this team, even though I think the Warriors, in terms of depth of their bench, have a more skilled team in a lot of ways, I can't decide whether I like watching LeBron and the Cavs or not because it's he's just, it's just such a bizarre situation, especially at this level in the season, right? I mean. Right. Is,
1: Yeah. Right. And it's more fascinating than watching LeBron with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh because it's watching LeBron with four guys that he picked up at the Cleveland equivalent of Fourth Street in Greenwich Village at the courts um it is it's bizarre i mean you just you you know exactly what's going to happen right i mean occasionally there'll be a kick out or a pass to a wide open J.R. smith on the on the wing who will throw one up from 25 but you know that he is going to take the shot he know you know there's going to be a clear out at some point on almost every possession and he must have handled the ball on what 70 or 80% of Cleveland's offensive possessions, when I say handle the ball, I mean, handle them on 100% of possessions, but handle the ball with an opportunity to shoot. I mean, and I think the numbers back us up there. He took 40% right, of right. the Cavaliers' shots last night.
3: Yeah, and it is fascinating to watch, and he has scored a lot of points, but let's not lose sight sight of the fact that the Cleveland offense has been very bad. <laughs> it's, right, not like, it's not like he is you know Serena like hitting aces on every point the way that Cleveland has stayed in these games is because their defense has been fantastic and this is for a team that didn't really play great defense all year and Vedova in particular on Stephen Curry in game 2 um I don't think I I saw the stats after the game I don't think Curry hit a shot when he was being guarded, guarded. by Vadova. and the Warriors are a team with a great offense and a great defense, but known more and loved more by fans for just their crisp play, their passing, Clay Thompson and Stephen Curry's shooting. And defense is a little bit less fun to watch because it's frustrating the beautiful artistry of you know the guys that we want to see. And it's led to an ugly series. It's led to kind of frustrating play at times. But I think that's where yeah. you have to focus, Mary, if you want to talk about... Um, what Cleveland is doing right in this series.
2: Well, and I was wondering about the Irving injury specifically, like how costly that's going to be, right? Because he's kind of the other ball handler. And and so I think the next game that'll be really telling. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's almost like it's not comical because we're talking about human beings being injured, but it's really insane what's happening on that roster right now at this point. And especially when you're so used to seeing LeBron play at this level with, you know, the Heat squad. Like, it just seems like these are... So, it's hard to believe it's still the NBA Finals. Like, it just seems like... The the play is so, so different.
3: And with Irving's injury, Stefan, we've talked about this so many times over the years. Um, Is there an analogy to be made to, for example, Robert Griffin III playing um, in games in the playoffs for the Washington football team with a compromised knee, seeming like he's not really the same after re-injuring it? If I were to embody the role of hang-up-and-listen panelist Mike Pesca. (laughs) <laughs> I would say that this is the NBA finals and if you asked Irving it's at the huge. end of if you asked Irving at the end of his career, you know, do you regret making the decision to play in this game with having ankle injuries, having knee injuries, then he would probably say no. But what are your thoughts on Cleveland's decision, Irving's decision to play and then what the outcome was?
1: these games are always governed by more than reality, by more than facts, by more than medical facts. And we know that, we see this in every sport, and we're more attuned to it now because particularly of what's happened in football and, and trying to make more sort of calm assessments about current state of health of an athlete and future state of health of an athlete. And look, we're not the Cleveland medical staff. Cleveland Clinic, very good hospital. Very good doctors there, I'm sure, Kyrie Irving. Got some good advice, um, good treatment. But, yeah, it's hard to know whether the adrenaline rush of wanting to compete in a series where you know, as an athlete, that your team really does need you, where you are very, very shorthanded and playing, as you said, Josh, one of the best teams possibly in the history of the NBA. Um, So that pressure on you, on Kyrie Irving must have been enormous. And I'm sure he felt that pressure from his teammates. I'm sure LeBron wasn't sidling up to him saying, hey, Kyrie, man, you know, I'm thinking about 2017 and how important it is that you're healthy and that you get to that second max contract.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I I think that point about this coming up in every every sport is a really good one. And I mean, my impression has always been usually people play. I mean, usually it's, the adrenaline of these athletes and also these are like multi million dollar enterprises. I mean, whether he plays or not has all these other ripple effects and he has like a whole team. So the the human in me thinks it's like insane, but the person who watches this unfold every time is never surprised. I don't know. Yeah. We'll
3: see. And the injury um certainly made for a sad scene on the court and a very bad overtime in game one. Um but what these games have lacked In execution at times, they've made up for it in drama. And those are really the two categories. Um, You know, these are why we watch sports. Number one is to watch players like Steph Curry and LeBron James make plays that make our mouths go agape. And the other reason is that we can't anticipate what's going to happen and that something bizarre or crazy just might. And that's something that sports can provide that other forms of human entertainment Cannot And there were just so many plays. Zach Lowe wrote about this in his Grantland recap of Game 2. Two dozen little plays that were an inch away from turning out differently. The LeBron shots at the end of mm. regulation in Game 1 and Game 2. And so, something that I just kept focusing on is the perception that calls were bad, often the, the, I think, correct belief that calls by the referees were bad, but just how impossible these games are to officiate. So I don't necessarily come down on blaming the referees. Right. Except for the Iguodala <laughs>
1: hack on LeBron's arm. I mean, that was
3: pretty But bad. I think the ref was screened out. I mean, it might have been, it's, yeah. it's really easy to see that that was sure. a foul, but is it easy for that
1: person in that moment? I feel season? like it wouldn't
2: be the NBA Finals if we weren't arguing about officiating at some point, right? I mean, this just always, always comes up.
1: <laughs> yeah. and, what, and I think what also makes this great is that there is a real sort of subtext um, to what's going on on the court. You know, whether it's the apparent head injuries, not apparent the head injuries to Steph Curry and Clay Thompson in previous games, or to what the hell LeBron James must be thinking. Like I'm playing with four guys from the gym. What the hell do I have to do in order to carry this team to a championship? Well, he I was mean, playing that is...
3: against J.R. Smith at certain points in that game. Yeah, <laughs> that was that Smith <laughs> was working at counter purposes. To yes, his he genius. was. I mean, I
1: think one one of uh, the I mean the twitters were excellent last night. I've got a, a shout out to our friend Bruce Arthur, the Canadian who wrote that the only difference between LeBron James and Michael Jordan is that Jordan would have murdered J.R. Smith on the court.
2: <laughs> also the Curry Frown Face meme, I was totally behind the you know the, you know what I'm talking about, right? The shot of him just the the sad um, the, I the feel so bad face. for athletes on live television yeah. because, like, think about it. If somebody was, like, recording us at the gym, I mean, nobody looks – like, you're just – you're so – I don't know. And yet these things live on the Internet now in this really unique way. Thank um,
1: God no one ever recorded me playing basketball at the gym, which I did a
3: lot. <laughs> so the series is going back to Cleveland now for Game 3. Um, It is in the 2-2-1-1-1 format, so it will be going back to – Golden State as I said in my intro I think the Warriors are pretty clearly the favorite still I think that we're in for a great Steph Curry performance coming up in one of these games and the Warriors just have so many different players and so many different ways to execute offensively that it just doesn't seem like the Cavs can maintain this and yet this is why we watch and if it is like like you're saying with it, maybe it's like Serena Williams winning in the French Open while vomiting into a towel mm-hmm. I mean because right. LeBron right. is just at once the <laughs>
1: J.R. Smith is the vomit in <laughs> that analogy <laughs>
3: he is he is at once the ultimate overdog you know in terms of physical mental like just outshines everyone in basketball and yet is like saddle is, is just like wearing J.R. Smith sized wa- weights around his ankles um, it's just hard to think of a <laughs> comparison of um, you know an athlete who's so great and so burdened at once and that's really the joy of watching this series yeah, It should
1: be a piece of cake for him too. The, all, the, all the Golden State has to do is continue to put up the worst performances of the year <laughs> for Cleveland to, to take things to overtime and have a chance.
3: I think that's right. Alright, Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Here's a word from one of our sister podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Jason Lincoln's host of So That Happened, a HuffPost podcast about the things that have happened in politics this week. This time out, we're talking about the Patriot Act and NSA reform. Who's hemming and hawing? Who's yelling? Who's taking credit? And what does it all mean for you? You can listen to our show each week at iTunes.com Panoply or by searching So That Happened on iTunes or Stitcher.
3: On Saturday evening in New York's Belmont Park, the horse American Pharaoh tried to become the 12th equine athlete to win the sports triple crown and the first to win the Kentucky Derby Preakness and Belmont since Affirmed did it in 1978. Here is track announcer Larry Colmis on the call.
4: And they're into the stretch, and American Pharoah makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American Pharoah's got a two-length lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole. And here it is. The
2: 37-year wait is over. American Pharoah is finally the one. American
0: Pharoah has won the Triple Crown.
3: Writing about the race in Sports Illustrated, Tim Layden said, for so long, horse racing had been stuck on the same yellowed page So many times the Triple Crown had seemed at hand and so many times cruel reality dropped a hammer on old Belmont Park and so many times a generation and more was left without a legend of its own to pass along, left instead to live with musty recollections growing more distant by the year. It was a bay colt named American Pharaoh who finally set everybody free. Tim's piece was so good that it pulled off something even more unlikely than a horse winning the Triple Crown. It was widely praised by internet commenters. (laughs) Um, I am happy now to welcome in Tim Layden of Sports Illustrated. Tim, thanks for joining us.
4: Hey, thanks. I think I could have used another period in that sentence somewhere, now that I'm hearing it read out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
3: the commenters didn't point it out, so I'm sure it was uh, perfect. Um, In the piece, one of the things that you kept coming back to was the word chingon, um, and Bob Baffert, the trainer, was telling you that throughout the lead-up to the Belmont. Can you explain to folks what that word means, what the significance is?
4: Yeah obviously you know I'm I'm not bilingual I'm I'm barely monolingual you know I I had a chance to Bob was great I've known him for a better part of a decade or more than that like 14 years and uh he gave me pretty good access when he was under a lot of duress to give a lot of people access and uh he let me hang out with him a few times and uh chingon came up when I was with him right in the middle between the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes, and we were watching a workout together uh, from the box seats at, at Churchill Downs on an empty track, and it's a word that uh, Martin Garcia, the exercise rider, who was also a jockey, said into his walkie-talkie. He wears a walkie-talkie on his chest and baffer holds it in his hand, and when uh, American Pharoah came onto the track to, to work out that day, he said, super chingon, and... Uh, and, I, and Baffer started laughing, and I asked him what the word meant, and he tried to explain it to me, and he just said it means awesome cool tough strong it's like and I wound up asking other people who who are bilingual or who have a knowledge of sort of espanol slang and it, it it's basically it's basically the most powerful thing you can say about somebody especially an athlete or a cultural figure and uh came sort of a touchstone that Baffer and I went back to a few times and you know as you guys know as as journalists it, it became something that was it was only mine, and, uh, and and I reminded Baffert about three times, you know, you're a chatty guy, do not get up and, <laughs> and, uh, and say, chingo, and that's, that's between you and me, and I'll, I'll make good on it eventually.
1: Baffert says in your piece, Tim, we've had a lot of good horses, I've never had one that moves like this, never. You called it powerful, yet effortless. What does that mean? What do horse people appreciate in American Pharoah that we non-horse people can't really see?
4: You know, it's... And again, I'm not a horse trainer or a horse breeder, so this is, I'm, I'm learning, you know, I'm, I covered the sport on and off. It's not a full-time gig for me or, or anybody that's trying to pay bills. Um, it's hard to know, but, but I mean, basically, the, the act of a horse running over the ground is a violent act. You know, animals weigh more than 1,000 pounds landing on, on limbs that are no bigger than, than your legs and, uh, and smaller in most cases. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of stunning act, and an American Pharaoh completed that act in a way where he, he's, he's able to, to reduce the, in the, the stress that he puts on his body and on the ground. And he, he has a great angle in his shoulder and the front of his body, which allows him to reach out particularly far with his front legs, and also uh, a, a very, uh, the ability to get his rear legs underneath him a long distance, push off very hard, and throw himself forward. And, and to do all this in a way that's not disruptive, he runs smoothly and powerfully at the same time. The additional factor in all that is that he doesn't tire himself out doing it. He's he's efficient, is the best way I can put it. I mean, it's like, you know, you you, you watch a, a great Ethiopian, or Ethiopian distance runner, and he's it just doesn't look like he's moving, and he's running faster than most of us can sprint. Um, that's the way it is with American Pharaoh. He's just and, and all great horses. it um, wasn't necessarily that way. He was just powerful. Um, and whereas American Pharoah was more efficient, I guess it's really the, the best word that kept coming up.
2: I have a non-horse question. Um, you know, horse racing as a sport is in such a strange place. It's just been plagued by you know scandal and controversy. Do you think that this win will give the sport itself some you know an injection of goodwill or arouse interest from non-horse people or expand it, or or will is this kind of a flash in the pan?
4: Yeah, I don't. I don't that comes up so often that you know mary the way it was like for so many years people would say you know as you're going through the triple crown you'd you'd hear journalists or people in the business say oh man you know horse racing needs a triple crown winner and my response to that and and i really like covering the sport and i I wanted to see a triple crown you know i missed the last one you know i mean i was drinking beers with a bunch of buddies on cape cod when the last one happened i certainly wasn't filing a story afterward and uh so i mean my view is I want to see one. I think it'll be a really cool thing if it happens, and it really was a cool thing, you know, top five sporting events I've ever been around. and But yet, I don't see how that's going to put people in the stands at Finger Lakes on Thursday. You know, mm. I, just, I just don't, you know, I was talking with Bill Roden from the Times very late Saturday night leaving, and I said, you know, a great column to do for people that want to make that point is to come back out here Thursday to Belmont Park and... And, and take the pulse of the place then when it's, you know, 65, 70, 75-year-old guys from Queens and the Bronx watching simulcasting on TVs and shuffling around and maybe going out to watch a horse race. That, I, I don't take the totally cynical attitude about that because I do think there is a lot of short-term excitement about seeing the athletic achievement and if you were there feeling the roar of the crowd and the emotion. I think all that was great. It was a great day. But I think it's a mistake to try and project too much onto that. You know, I mean, I... My recommendation is to embrace the day, the achievement and and then but horse racing has much more complex issues to resolve if it if it wants to survive as an enterprise and, and but otherwise I think it's a niche sport like pretty much everything in America is except the NFL and maybe college football. You know.
3: So the the triple crown is just a very difficult thing to achieve as we've seen over the last thirty seven years. And there was some talk um before this year of maybe changing the rules and is this something that's too hard steve coburn the owner of california chrome which failed in its attempt last year was i in my perception kind of whining about it saying all oh, these other horses didn't have to run the derby and the freakness and they just got a free run it at, at my guy and and got to play spoiler is this Um, You know, the fact that a horse was able to achieve this, is this vindication in some way for how difficult it was that it took a horse this special to do it? Or is the Triple Crown still just an odd thing? And the fact that the Belmont is longer than any race that any of these horses ever run, and it's three races in five weeks for horses that aren't built for it, is it still something that doesn't particularly make sense?
4: I don't know about whether it makes sense I mean everything you said is 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 right i mean it's i it could be thirty seven more years. It is very hard to do and and but but people in the game that weren't whiny and that weren't revisionists have been saying for a long time eventually the right horse will come along and and even when the right horse comes along, there are you know, mitigating circumstances that are just it's just partly luck I mean the horse stayed healthy and and that's like you know, the Golden State Warriors have generally stayed healthy. That's like sort of this X factor in all sports that's very hard to predict. But that horse stayed healthy. And and when the Belmont came up, he got a, this is a horsey term, a pace scenario. He was the fastest horse in the race, which allowed him to get to the lead and control the pace. And from a purely athletic standpoint, he was able to run at the slowest possible speed that he could maintain and still keep the lead, for almost the entire race really up to the last quarter mile and then really start running fast and and if there had been a fast horse that would not be able to finish the race well he might have been able to pressure american pharaoh more and and tire him out earlier in the race so the race set up very well for him There a lot of circumstances that fell in line to make this triple crown achievable Um, as far as changing it the triple crown isn't uh... isn't a unified body it's it's just a name given to these three races by a sports writer a long time ago. It's three big races run by three separate racing commissions with three separate layers of political influence and intrigue. And the likelihood of those three bodies getting together and agreeing to change the dates of their biggest races of the year, I, I think we're stuck with it as it is. And, you know, my best hope is that from a writing standpoint, You know, thank heavens that I or anybody else that continues to write about this sport either all the time or once in a while doesn't have to juggle that storyline anymore.
1: (laughs) It's also (laughs) these things are supposed to be hard. I mean, you know, I think we often forget or it's often overlooked that there was no Triple Crown winner between Citation in 1948 and Secretariat in 1973, 25 years. That was a long time, too. And that predates the era of really genetically working and breeding these horses, to make them something that maybe mother nature didn't intend to make them more fragile and make them um... less susceptible to being able to pull off this kind of an achievement
4: one of the things that people forget when they get hung up on a horse winning the first two legs and getting to the belmont and the test of the champion the mile and a half is the kentucky derby is the hardest of the three races to win it's earlier in the year the horses have been through a grueling bunch of prep races it's hard to get into that race under the current point system there's 20 horses in the field. I mean, there have been some great horses that won the Preakness and the Belmont, but didn't have the Derby. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of ways in which in which the series is, is difficult, but, but that's the one that gets overlooked. Bob Baffert had a horse named Point Given 13 years ago that won the Preakness and the Belmont easily and, and was probably every bit as good as American Pharoah or better, but you know he he got caught up in some traffic in the derby and didn't win that one so it's it's an overlooked hurdle and and it might be the biggest one of the bunch
2: So I was just, we were talking a little bit about the ownership of the horse um, and the decision to keep the horse racing. You know, you were talking about kind of the storyline of the sport now that we have a Triple Crown champion changing so much, but there's also this new one that's so interesting, right? I mean, because that's pretty unusual, and what do you think about that decision and also kind of how the owner has come across in in the media in the last few days?
4: Ah, yeah. He's a complicated (laughs) guy. I mean, he's, uh, Ahmed Zayat um, is a guy who... uh, you know he has he's had a lot of financial entanglements while also making a lot of money and he's done a good job of keeping his personal wealth separate from his horse wealth that's also caused him to not always pay people on time uh, including bob baffert and uh... but at the same time he pumps tens of millions of dollars into the industry buying horses so it's it's kind of an attrition issue that you really need wealthy people to give you horses and uh for a guy like that to stay in the business when you have a horse like american pharaoh but many other fast horses on a lower scale once that horse proves that he has value then you want to get him to a breeding farm or at least make a deal with a breeding farm so that you can then breed that horse for fifteen or twenty five or forty five or fifty five thousand dollars for every getting a little too literal here but every mating with a mare and then you get that money or you get a share of it and that's how you keep your business operating really so here Zayat is sitting on a horse that's won the Triple Crown for the first time in thirty seven years. He already has a stud deal which is valued i've heard anywhere from six to eight million to fifteen or twenty million um, and if the horse were to run in a month and, and break his leg that money, he's got insurance. but a, a huge source of revenue for him is is gone those That's a difficult decision which people will criticize him for if he doesn't run the horse frequently, but you know it's it's uh that, that horse will never be more valuable than he is today.
1: Ultimately, Tim, you know, the Triple Crown is such a big event, and this is such a historic achievement. Um, but underlying a lot of this is, is is are these problems in horse racing. Your former Sports Illustrated colleague Jeff McGregor tweeted after the race, good, now that we've had a Triple Crown winner, let's go ahead and ban horse racing. And he linked to a list of the 43 equine deaths in New York so far this year, including one on Saturday at Belmont in a race earlier in the day I and mean, this is an industry plagued with with issues involving drugs and treatment of horses and the way they're bred and trained um, is there a balance to be achieved going forward do you think
4: well i'll say two things um, you know the, the first thing is if if you're if you are inclined to be repulsed by a sport in which People get on the back of beautiful animals and, and urge them to run fast around a track and hit them with a whip, and they're kept in a stall for 23 and a half hours a day. If you are inclined to dislike that or be repulsed by it, I don't know what is going to change your mind. Um, and I can certainly see and, and defend that position, or I can understand how that position is defensible. If you are more in the, the vast middle ground, then what you hope is that we reach a point where there's at least minimal drug use, and I think the sport has moved somewhat in that direction. If we get rid of that entirely, we're a long way from that. A lot of trainers, including Bob Baffert, thinks you can't run an active stable without Lasix. You can't keep horses healthy. Um, it's a huge industry that requires a lot of races and a lot of tracks on a lot of days, and most of them aren't as well-bred, splendid animals as American Pharoah, and they need a lot of help to keep racing, and if you want to say those horses shouldn't be racing at all, then I just don't know how you run the industry. It's a problem, without a doubt, and I, I don't have the answer.
3: I want to get one final thought from you. And, you know, like Mary was saying before, I don't even know what the mechanism would be for this event to save horse racing if that were to happen. Like, what? how would that work? But, um, you know, this thing happened on Saturday. As you said, it was in the top five sporting events that you've witnessed and you've seen a lot in your career at sports illustrated just um you know describe to us a few like scenes or details of you know what the crowd response was and what it felt like to be there
4: i watched the race from uh from a catwalk right in front of bob baffert's box it was a loud roar when they went into the gate which is not uncommon and then as as american Farrell led the race and went around the track the roar got louder and louder and louder it sounded more like a college football stadium on a saturday night or or you know cameron indoor stadium at duke or something. one of these places the old chicago stadium where it's really started making your ears hurt a little bit i've never heard that kind of sound the uniqueness of it was everybody in the building or everybody in the in the facility was rooting for the same thing and then for me from an intellectual and emotional standpoint having seen so many of these and having been disappointed at not getting to write that story and then eventually fatigued at having to write the same story over and over again to look straight down at the track, maybe five strides from the finish line, and seeing American Pharaoh go by, and I I didn't feel an emotional response at that point. I felt an intellectual response, which was, he's actually going to win this thing. And, and I was, I couldn't even process the thought. And I mean, I realized that's a personal response, rather than an environmental one. I mean, the noise was still in my ears, and I was kind of overwhelmed by that. And then there was Bedlam, and there was, you know, people was trying to follow Baffert and Zayat down to the winner's circle, and, and the, the high-fiving and people crying, and, and it, it, was, it was just an overwhelming emotional circumstance. And, and for anybody who's spent a day at a sporting event writing it and then leaving, you're kind of wasted anyway. But when the result has been disappointing or unsatisfying, you're doubly wasted. And this time I just walked through there, and I thought about Smarty Jones, and I thought about Real Quiet and Silver Charm and Big Brown, and I just, it just felt this sense of closure, which you don't usually get. And uh, it, it made the walk to my car...
3: That's great, and this piece that you wrote was great. Um, Maybe the last thought you had was, maybe someone will want to have me on a podcast.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't think that, but I'm thrilled that it happened.
3: All right, Tim, well, we'd love to have you back, um, and thanks for doing it.
4: Okay, thanks a lot.
3: Tim Layden is a writer for Sports Illustrated. Okay, last topic, uh, the Women's World Cup started in Canada this weekend bringing the promise of happier news for FIFA, the international soccer organization, which is, you might say, embattled. You could also say that it's a fucking catastrophe. I, <laughs> I wouldn't argue with you. Um, but the Women's World Cup, rare beacon of inspiration in then inter- international soccer world. There is the matter of games being played on artificial turf rather than natural grass, a fact that led to a lawsuit it was ultimately unsuccessful. And yes, maybe there will be more blowouts this time around with 24 teams this year up from 16 in 2011. But Germany's 10-0 win over Ivory Coast on Sunday, that wasn't that much more dominating than Germany's 7-1 thrashing of Brazil in the Men's World Cup last year. Then there are the American women, role models to young girls and the rest of us, who will make their World Cup debut against Australia on Monday night. Among their number, goalkeeper Hope Solo, According to reporting from ESPN's Mark Fainer-Ruwada, appears to have concocted a phony self-serving story about her role in an alleged incident of domestic violence in which, according to uh, which person you believe, she either beat up her nephew or was beaten up by the same I Stephanie. think we all
1: agree that there was a domestic <laughs> violence there. That wasn't alleged.
2: But but I think that what was fascinating to me about that story and the reaction to it is this now kind of new common trope in sports journalism, and it seems to happen a lot with domestic violence, Ray Rice comes to mind, where you have the redemption story. And I actually, I know this sounds insane, but... When I read the original ESPNW story about Hope Solo and she's, you know, on, you know, the she's she's I think she was even wearing white, like everything about it seemed to be focused on creating this image of cleansing. It reminded me of Joseph Campbell. And I was like, Ad agents and, and PR people know this plays to people and that it really resonates. But the aftermath of it and the fact that it's way more complicated is often what we as journalists see. That's so much more messy. But
3: yeah, I mean, the Hope Solo thing has been nuts, like how many different Time she's transgressed and been redeemed, and um, you know that she's just misunderstood. And the interesting thing about it, and Richard Deitch, who we had on this podcast a few weeks ago, um, had a good column on this, is that it was really a good test case for Fox, which is broadcasting uh, the Women's World Cup, any World Cup for the first time, how they would handle this outbreak of news during a sporting event. And Stefan, they didn't do a very
1: Good job. Uh, no. Um, most of uh, <laughs> Deitch wrote, most of the panel came off as auxiliary PR for Hope Solo and U.S. Soccer. And I watched the games on Saturday and took notes about the Fox panel, and I was impressed. They had a five woman panel. Um, they were all smart and they really focused on the games. And I've been sort of energized by the fact that a lot of the coverage in the media has been about. The the actual the athletes and the teams and their prospects and really treat it as a serious, serious sporting event. And I think that's even in contrast to four years ago in the Women's World Cup, which was in Germany. Um, But Deitch nailed it. I mean, he quoted directly from the panelists that Fox had in their booth. And it was they were they were almost to a person dismissive of the reporting, pretty much ignoring it, not really raising what the substantive facts of Mark Van Rooada's reporting were. Old news said Leslie Osborne, who played on the U.S. national team with Solo a few years ago, you know, right now we're focusing on the tournament, why are we focusing on Hope Solo? Uh, Angela Huklis, another former U.S. national team player, said, guess what, Australia and the U.S. play tomorrow. And then Eric Winalda was in the booth on Sunday. Not a woman, by the way. Just want to clarify that. This stuff is starting to get annoying to me, he said. Save it for Judge Judy. I mean... Oh, my God. I mean, Winalda, (laughs) let's stipulate, always comes off as a condescending know-it-all. But talk about not understanding anything about the intersection of sports and life or about what news is or the way domestic violence has dominated the sports conversation for the past year plus. And more important to me, as Josh alluded to in his opening to this segment, the greater role that the U.S. women's national team plays in terms of the age of its fan base and their responsibility as, air quotes, role models. That, to me, is the issue. The NFL at this point seems to have more common sense about how violent, misbehaving athletes should be treated than U.S. soccer does. In his piece for ESPN— That's uncalled for. I'm gonna,
3: that's a yellow card. That's a yellow card.
1: <laughs> I'm going. That was a hot take. Yeah. I'm going well, hot. The, the, the I'm US going soccer. hot. Let me, well, let me finish here, Mary. I'm not okay, done okay, hot sorry, taking. Sorry. And I think one of the most important points that Fan Rwada makes in his piece is that U.S. soccer didn't really even appear to investigate at all what happened that night between Hope Solo and her half sister and her nephew. And they claim they did.
2: Right, but that's a phone call and the the Hope Redemption story should have been made. I mean, how did U.S. soccer get a total free pass on how they handled this situation? And I get the argument that, you know, it's a bummer to be on the U.S. team now and not be Hope Solo and just trying to focus and have all this, you know, media static. But at the same time, it's the Women's World Cup. It's a massive sporting event and you can't have that much attention on a sport at the highest level, whether it's men or women playing, and not have news happening and not have this kind of scrutiny. And so the fact that the governing body was MIA, and nobody really questioned that until after. I was really surprised by
1: Wait, And that's not to say, Josh, that there isn't room to just talk about this for a while. Just talk about it legitimately. Have a short conversation if that's all you really want to have, but have a legitimate conversation, and then fine, let's talk about Germany's 10 goals against Cote d'Ivoire.
3: Yeah, and just to be clear, I... Don't think that US soccer necessarily should have like conducted their own investigation. I have problems with how the NFL do. has done right, that. But right. if you say that you did, then you should have done it. You can't right. claim to have done something and not done it. That's when you lose respect of fans. That's when you need to be called out by media members. And that is what didn't happen in this Fox telecast. And there are questions about the bidding process for the, I mean, it, it almost seems like so insignificant compared to all the other horrible stuff that FIFA has done, but there are questions about the bidding process that led Fox to get World Cups that it wasn't bid out. And just as viewers, you want to think, and ESPN, for all that we criticize them, has done really a solid job on soccer, has just proven themselves repeatedly with their coverage of the uh, FIFA scandal um, you know, in the last couple weeks and also with their coverage of last few World Cups, and I think it was disappointing to a lot of soccer fans, myself included, that they didn't get the World Cup, and this performance by Fox on the opening weekend just makes it seem like I was right, or should we were we, right. should,
1: we, should we get past the judge duty now? Let's talk a little bit about the tournament. Is that okay? Yeah. How were how how are the games
3: on Saturday, seven?
1: The games on Saturday were fascinating. I think the Canada only beating uh, China by one to nothing was you know that was, was China was terrific and this was a team that used to be a women's soccer power that has really fallen off
3: 99 World Cup final the famous one they correct went to penalty kicks against the U.S.
1: right and Canada had needed a penalty kick late in in that game to to prevail and Canada is a team that is projected with the United States and France and Germany and maybe Brazil as being the likely contenders uh, to, to reach the final um, 538
2: has them at seventh going in just in case anybody's wondering and to
1: talk yeah. about legitimizing a sport the fact that 538 sort of has done a matrix of projection indices for the women's world cup i think is another great indication that the sport is being taken seriously and the progress that's been made on the turf issue josh fox reported during the germany ivory coast match that it was 73 degrees in the air and 110 degrees on the field in the norway thailand match temperatures reportedly were up to 130 degrees on the turf
2: It's insanity. I mean, and just think, what if the Women's World Cup was held in Qatar on (laughs) artificial (laughs) turf? Like, geez Louise, like we're putting people in like microwaves. Like it's insane.
3: (laughs) So Mary, what are your thoughts on the appeal of this event to an American audience? You can just talk about your appeal to yourself or you can project onto uh, everyone else who lives in this fair country. I'm fascinated by how the U.S. team is going to do. I Want them to win. I root for them. I find their games quite enjoyable. But this is a large event in which the United States only plays a few times. Are you going to be tuning in to see Germany and Norway and and the other teams? And if the U.S. goes out early, which I think is a possibility, what do you think that's going to mean for the event?
2: Oh, what a great question. You know, it's it's interesting because the world I think soccer in general, the men's and the women's game, is in a, such a weird place in the US right now because now you actually do have people on the World Cup show this here watching. Like we have soccer fans in a way, and I've always been blown away by this because so many kids, me included, play soccer, we know the sport, but then at the pro level it drops off. It's been this constant thing, blah, blah, blah. So I do think there's gonna be more interest than ever before, and something else that's happened organically um, that I think helps a lot as the depth of the women's game has improved so dramatically. The question is, how much are people going to be following these storylines? Because unlike Europe, you know, this isn't something that is paid attention to in the U.S. And I was at um, the London Olympics for the U.S.-Japan final, which, by the way, Sepp Blatter was booed at, and that was in 2012, in case anybody, if we want to have a Sepp Blatter boo count. And and so I think there are these really compelling storylines. It's just a matter of how how interested people are, and then when it doesn't involve the U.S., um, the U.S. team is really, I think, amazing to watch. But, and I actually think that sometimes the earlier sides of any tournament, including soccer, um, are more interesting to watch. I feel this way about March Madness because there are some upsets, there are some surprises, there are there there is some drama. So, I. I, I don't know. I think it's better than it's ever been, but I still think women's soccer in the U.S. has quite a ways to go in terms of really feeling out its you know whole potential for women, and I think the turf uh, for fans, and I think that the turf thing is insane, um, <laughs> and I I'm, 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 I hope that that you know changes soon.
1: Well, the the New York Times Magazine had a piece on Sunday titled "Why Is U.S. Women's Soccer Still Fighting to Exist." And you know, I think we've we've talked about the reasons for a lot of that, and it has to do with sponsorship and marketing and attendance on a week to week basis as opposed to a quadrennial event that has been proven to attract audiences when the United States does well. I mean, there's some, there's definitely some, so there's got to be some anxiety among people at Fox. Um, and elsewhere, that the United States won't make it as far as they have in the past. So while this tournament has been expanded to 24 teams, and there's going to be a lot more. There, you know, there are a lot more weak teams in this event, as we saw with Ivory Coast, and you'll see with Thailand and some other uh, countries that are that are playing in the World Cup for the first time really at the top, it has improved enormously. And part of the reason it's improved enormously is because there's a professional league in the United States that's been sustainable. It hasn't been killing anybody, but it's been sustainable. And there are professional leagues in Europe that are sustainable, um, where a lot of the American women have chosen to play rather than play in the United States. So again, I've always been of the mind that this is a 30 to 40 to 50 year project, both for men and women. I mean, the U.S. men... Beat the Netherlands over the weekend, four to three in one of the great soccer games that a United States national team has ever played. Um, So on on the women's side, the fact that we have all of this this year, we have all 52 games airing on television, and we have the sort of really noticeable change in how the media is covering the event. These are all incredibly positive things that are
3: cumulative. But it seems uh, to me that like this is paralleling the conversation we had about the Cricket World Cup and how there's an argument within that sport about do you want to add teams that aren't as good and grow the game, quote unquote, at you know the expense of having these blowouts? And also, um, you know, the conversation we had about the year in the Cricket World Cup when sure. India went out early in the tournament and then nobody watched the rest mm-hmm. of the tournament. I feel like you guys are not willing to say that you will be tuning out in droves if and when the U.S. goes out early. I don't. I certainly will not have the same interest, and in. I'm not apologetic I about it. I will have it. no
1: choice because I have tickets to the quarterfinal, <laughs> semifinal, and final game. So I'll Could be there that. no matter what.
2: Well, and I think the U.S. team... I, I mean, to be honest, I think you're right, but I think that what's also been so effective, you know, to Stefan's point, is that they have characters on that team now. And you were, you know, like, there are... Abby fans and, you know, and there are people who care about Hope Solo, which is why that news story is getting so much attention. Like there are these it's it's a really mature team in that they aren't new faces. Um, And so when they leave, you know, I don't know the lineup for Germany or Japan as well. And I, I don't think I'm unique in that regard. Sawa. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I and mean, it doesn't teams, mean they're not tremendous athletes with fascinating stories, but they're just not written about in the U.S. as much. So I, I do think that you lose this cast of characters that American fans are starting to get to know.
3: Right. The opponents at this point are, you know, they play the role of foil. And you don't want to see foil versus foil in the uh, in the final. All right. Um, let's move on to our afterballs. And I was looking at a list of nicknames for women's national teams, and there are some good ones. According to Wikipedia, the Colombian women. Are las chicas super poderosas, the Power the Powerpuff Girls, Uh, the the Nigerian women are the super falcons Mm -hmm. in contrast to the men who are the super eagles. But my favorite is the New Zealand women who are known as the football ferns. Uh, When I look at the New Zealand national team. I think they look like nothing more than vascular plants that reproduce via spores. <laughs> <laughs> How
2: Go come ferns. Everything involving New Zealand is bizarre and awesome at the same time. <laughs>
3: um, do you have a football fern for us, Mary?
2: So I kind of. I've been thinking a lot, and I know you know FIFA, 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 everybody's sick of it, but I've been thinking a lot about this idea of sports fans as voters. So in the last couple of weeks alone, there have been scandals in FIFA, endurance running. We haven't talked about Alberto Salazar, but uh, ProPublica had a report that strongly implicated him as a coach in you know doping accusations in a sport that has been no stranger to that, of course. Um, horse racing, earlier we talked about American Pharaoh's controversial owner. And then, of course, you have Sepp Blatter, the longtime Cruella DeVille of, um, of FIFA. Um, and, and I think that often, you know, the reaction to these stories is the same among fans. There's this sense of anger and outrage and a feeling of, you know, how could this have happened? And there's also a sense of hopelessness. But I think it's insane that fans are actually sometimes the most empowered people in the whole scenario, but they don't really act that way or they don't necessarily connect the dots. So, for example, if you look at FIFA... A lot of the money involved in these bribery allegations, according to the Justice Department, has come from these huge, lucrative broadcast contracts uh, from Fox and Telemundo, as well as corporate sponsors from brands that we do know. And even if you're not a sports fan, uh, I'd be baffled to know why you're listening to this podcast, but you would know, you know McDonald's, Budweiser, Nike, Adidas, Visa, Coca-Cola. And John Oliver in this really great skit for last week tonight. You know, he was making this bargain to FIFA sponsors that he would wear, you know, these Adidas shoes that he felt were really hideous. He would eat McDonald's dollar menu and drink a bottle of Bud Light lime, which I unfortunately have tasted. It's pretty not it's not my it's not my drink of choice. Um, If they would get rid of bladder, which ultimately ended up happening. And even though we don't all have John Oliver like exposure, uh, he does make a point that we can't move with our dollars and we don't take advantage of that enough. And, you know, if you look at what happened with the NFL and domestic violence, what I would argue really changed in that conversation was there were female football fans and they did put pressure on the league and its sponsors in how it handled those cases. There there is potential that uh, sponsors could act more decisively going ahead, whether it's an individual or not. But so far. The public statements and all of these scandals that I've you know, outlined um, have been basically finger-wagging. Nobody's actually said they're going to yank their checkbook. And it's an indirect connection, right? So with Lance Armstrong and Nike, you could argue that those brands were really closely linked. With FIFA, I don't know who goes and buys a pair of Nikes and thinks, oh, this organization is involved with this massive uh, you know, DOJ complaint and that implies that the you know, organization's been involved with bribery. And I think that there is a distinction between sponsoring an individual, an athlete, and an entire organization when when a league usually has a monopoly on a global sport. So historically, companies haven't hesitated to end those relationships with a professional athlete. But with leagues, it's a lot more complicated. Um, With the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, sponsors were blasted in the press on social media, but some of them, such as Coca-Cola, actually defended these partnerships. So. I guess my call is to sports fans that if they don't like something, that's totally fair enough. But if people want to see things change in sports, whether it's on field or off with governance, it's time to start seeing your checkbook as your ballot box.
3: A refreshing lack of
1: cynicism from Mary Plan. By the way, John Oliver did actually follow up on his pledge and drank, chugged actually, some Bud Light Lime on his program on Sunday. He described the taste as the Jolly Green Giants ejaculate. <laughs> 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 um,
3: Stefan, what is your Jolly Green Giant? Excuse me, what is your um, football
1: fern? I'm sticking with the FIFA. <laughs> sticking with the FIFA. Big weekend in soccer, everybody. United Passions, Josh reference at the top of the show $607 in uh, a 10 theaters in the United States. That is an impressive Has impressive there been, I don't want
3: to interrupt your afterball mojo, sure. but has anyone reported on why that movie got released? In the United in the States? US? No. Seemed like a bad that. idea that this isn't, Monday morning goalkeeping. (laughs) Like, you could have known in advance that that movie was not going to do well. But continue.
1: All right. A South African newspaper (laughs) reported that Morocco actually won the vote to host the 2010 World Cup, but FIFA manipulated the results to award the tournament to South Africa. Our corrupt Trinidadian sportocrat Jack Warner reportedly accepted a million dollars to vote for Morocco before taking another 10 million to vote for South Africa. He kept the million, though. Uh, A FIFA official said that Russia and Qatar could be stripped of the 2018 and 2022 two tournaments if they are found to have been involved in bribery haven't they already been found to have been involved in bribery and we also had thailand's women's football team make its world cup debut josh you did not mention that the thai women's football team is nicknamed the war elephants this this afterball could have been perfectly synchronous with (laughs) the afterball name that josh came up with without my my suggestions
3: letting you get get some uh you know, of, your yeah. own, of your own lines though. All right,
1: fine. The War Elephants <laughs> lost four to nothing to Norway. Should have been a lot worse. They did hit a crossbar, save a penalty. The Thai women are here at the World Cup because they beat Vietnam to win one of five Asian slots in the expanded tournament, after which the Royal Thai Football Federation announced plans for a golden generation of women's footballers. So good on Thailand, right? Who's leading that charge in Thailand? His name is Warawi Makudi. He's the head of the Thai Football Association, longtime member of FIFA's executive committee. He was the chairman of of fifa's women's football committee and of the 2011 women's world cup in germany after the thai women qualified for canada he announced bonuses of 15 million baht or more than four hundred thousand dollars for the team and after they lost by only five nothing to south korea last fall he rewarded them with two hundred thousand baht sixty two hundred dollars great guy Right. Actually, total FIFA scumbag alleged, of course, <laughs> alleged total FIFA scumbag. Let's round up some of the choice allegations against the 63 year old Thai sportocrat. In 2011, Lord Treesman, the former head of England's Football Association, accused Warawi in Parliament of offering to vote for England for the 2018 World Cup in exchange for the TV rights for himself personally to a Thailand-England friendly that would commemorate the anniversary of the King of Thailand's accession to the throne. I don't know how a Thai sportocrat sounds, but Warawi said that the accusations are not true and groundless and my reputation, I'm gonna go into my European sportocrat voice, has been tarnished and it defames my family. FIFA said it investigated and shockingly it cleared him. A Bangkok Sports Daily reported in 2011 that Warawi had resold FIFA tickets to the 2010 world cup for personal profit he sued the paper what are you gonna do you gotta sue the paper a source told australian journalist jesse fink in 2011 that when the our, our thai sportocrat was about to lose re-election as the head of the thai football association he canceled the election on the day it was scheduled to occur cut electricity to the building <laughs> where the election was to be held and left the country where did he go josh <laughs> <laughs> Journalist Andrew Jennings, who's reporting, if you go back and read it, is a blueprint for the Justice Department and FBI investigation. He said that Warari flew on Qatari FIFA member Mohammed bin Hamam's private jet to Trinidad. Hello, Jack Warner, carrying a million dollars or so in cash to be used to bribe CONCACAF members to vote for bin Hamam against Sepp Blatter for FIFA president Orari said he didn't see any of the money. Also in 2011, he was accused of using FIFA development grants to build soccer facilities on land that he owned. He denied that too. To back him up, he produced a letter from the disgraced FIFA General Secretary Jerome Valka. London newspapers reported last year that Orari or Thai soccer officials cut a range of deals with Russia and Qatar prior to the World Cup votes. Orari and his reps apparently traveled to Russia right before the voting He reportedly was directly involved in a deal signed in 2012 for Qatar to deliver two tons of liquefied natural gas via a Thai energy company that also happens to be a sponsor of The Thai Football Association. Finally, he's reported among the 10 FIFA executives being investigated by Swiss authorities in connection with the Russia and Qatar votes. He threatened to sue anyone who said he was involved in corruption. Orari's time as a soccer fat cat may be up. In 2013, he lost a bid to head the Asian Confederation. And last week, amid the news of the Swiss probe and the U.S. probe, he failed to win re election to the FIFA Executive Committee seat that he had held for 17 years. The Asian Confederation instead elected three new delegates, a Kuwaiti Sheik, a Malaysian prince, and remarkably a former Japanese soccer player, just a soccer player. That's it. One real soccer player.
3: I love the the election. He what did he do? He canceled the election, cut off <laughs> cut the, the electricity, electricity into the building, and, That's and an left amazing the country move. and left the country. I wouldn't
2: even if I think if I was in a rage, I wouldn't even think like, and I'm cutting the electricity. Like
3: <laughs> but that should be a business school case study. Like there's some great Redundancy there. Um, there, There's no way that he's going to lose that election. Exactly. He will not charge smartphones. Yeah. You could cancel the election, but you still might lose. I'm going to cut the electricity. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget, though, go war elephants. Go war elephants. Go war, go war elephants. elephants.
2: All
1: right, Josh, what's your football fern?
3: So I was looking at a list of horses that have failed to win the triple crown after winning the first two legs. And it's a longer list than the one of animals that succeeded in just the last few years, there's California Chrome, Big Brown, Smarty Jones. I'll Have Another didn't start in the Belmont due to tendinitis. Um, at the very beginning of the list is a horse named Burgu King, which won the Derby and Preakness in 1932. Um, in a list of equine failure on SB Nation, Burgu King's performance in the Belmont is listed as, did not start, unknown reason. Burgu, in case you're wondering, before we get to... Uh, deep in this afterball it's a spicy stew it's often served in kentucky and made of whatever meat you find lying around (laughs) options include possum and raccoon please don't say horse (laughs) not horse i mean whatever meat you find lying around in kentucky seems like would probably include horse but i'm just gonna go with possum and raccoon burger king the horse though won the kentucky derby by three lengths beat a horse named tick on by head in the Preakness, so why didn't Burgu King run in the Belmont? Some people say it's because the horse's owners did not file the proper paperwork, which would be a very dumb reason if true. Uh, more likely, it seems to me, is that the horse was injured. The Triple Crown apparently wasn't as big a deal back then because Burgu King actually uh, raced between the Preakness and the Belmont on something called the Withers Stakes. <laughs> not, <laughs> not a not a good name, not a good omen. Uh, the horse might have gotten injured in that event. Um, whatever happened. Burgoo King did not race at the Belmont, didn't race again until he was five years old. Uh, But the bigger mystery involves the horse's jockey, a teenager named Eugene James. James started riding in 1930 uh, as a teenager, age 16 or 17, won the Kentucky Derby on Burgoo King as a 19 year old, 1932. According to a story in the Thoroughbred Times, James was from Louisville, learned to be a jockey by riding his uncle's mule. Uh, James got to ride Burgoo King in the Derby because another jockey named Laverne Fator, um, who had his pick of mounts, decided to ride a horse named Brother Joe instead. Burgoo King won. Brother Joe finished 19th. Eugene James looked to be at the start of a brilliant career. But according to that thoroughbred time story, James was bulimic, which is an unfortunately common affliction for jockeys uh, back then and today. His bulimia reportedly led to a serious stomach disorder, which led him to stop riding. In 1933, at age 20, James drowned while swimming in a Chicago lake with an ex-boxer named Society Kid Hogan.
1: That's a good nickname. They don't make (laughs) nicknames like that anymore. Society Kid.
3: Um, Keep in mind that somebody just drowned, like in that exact sentence. Um, According to the (laughs) Chicago Tribune... 60 years ago. James... uh, 80 years ago. 80 years ago, sorry. Uh, James suggested the swim, but did not... uh, This is a quote. Did not heed Hogan's warning that the water was too cold for such an effort. A few years ago, a Louisville news station published a story in which James's relatives alleged that he had been murdered by mobsters. He was probably asked to throw a race, said his second cousin, and he was so young he didn't know not to tangle with the mob, and he wouldn't do what he was asked. There's no explanation given for why they think he was murdered by mobsters, um, so I'm not really able to assess the uh, truth value of that statement. But here is the crazy thing. Uh, The jockey uh, who decided not to ride Burgu King, the one who finished 19th in the Derby, Laverne Fader. Three years after James's death, he reportedly committed suicide by flinging himself at the window of a hospital room. There are questions about that death, too, um, with some people believing that he was suffering from a fever due to appendicitis and fell out of the window in a delirious state. So the lesson here, do not research uh, long-ago jockeys. If you do not want to be overwhelmed by weird and disturbing deaths.
1: Was Whoa. Burger King named after Burger King?
3: Did you see the thing about the Burger King King, like Bob Bafford getting money? hundred
1: and fifty thousand dollars to have a Burger King stand in his box.
3: A Burger King mascot. Preakness. It wow. all comes it all comes full circle.
2: Totally. Totally.
3: We all knew we all knew that's how that story was gonna end. Um, we'll I'll
2: write we'll write an existential play involving all of these characters. <laughs> the real horse, step will show up.
3: The real O. Henry ending was that Bergu King would have been turned into Bergu. But wow. maybe maybe in the yeah. in the play, in Mary Pallon's one-act play.
2: <laughs> we'll get FIFA to underwrite it. They'll finance yeah. it. It'll be great. Yeah. It'll be a box Tim office match. Be
3: Sponsored by Bud awesome. Light Lime. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at, hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our producer this week is Alexis Diao. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks to Mary Palan for being with us this week. Um, hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply our intern also Emma Zaner uh, remember Alma Beatty and thanks for listening